morning. You know, I know for me personally, in the Advent season, I get caught up in the uh, decorations and the trees and the gifts, Mariah Carey, eggnog, all that stuff. But let us not forget the real reason for the season, and that is Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. He is everlasting Father, mighty God, wonderful counselor, and Prince of Peace. May we not forget the reason that we can celebrate this season. Scripture reading for today comes to us from Acts chapter 16, verse 11 through 34. Acts chapter 16, verse 11 through 34. This is the word of the Lord. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the woman who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized, her whole household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And as we were going to the place of prayer, we, met, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owner saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. And about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself. For we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. You and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen.
morning, everybody. It's good to see all of you. Good to see Susan and Nathan joining us as well. Uh, thank you, David, for that prayer. Blessed by it. Also, I want to take a moment to uh, just express our thanks to our worship team uh, ministry. Uh, Pastor David oversees the ministry, uh, but just I I've noticed just a uh, gradual improvement over the past several months, and so you know they they work hard to. Um, really edify the church body with, you know, beautiful music and, and voices. So let's give them uh, just a hand of thanks, shall we? Yeah, Charlie's team did a great job this morning, so thank you. Um, I titled today's message, Philippi's Motley Crew Church. Think about that, Philippi's Motley Crew Church. I, I titled it this way because I wanted us to consider how so very different the three main characters introduced to us in this passage truly are. According to the Urban Dictionary, Motley Crew is defined in this way. I love this definition, actually. It says, an odd an often mismatched assortment of people, a group of friends or teammates who don't seem like they'd work well together, but somehow they do. What a helpful definition. In our passage today, see, we're first introduced to an affluent businesswoman named Lydia, and then we're introduced to a demon-possessed, fortune-telling slave girl and then to a city-employed prison guard, right, whose name we don't even know. And so all, all of these three people, they, they came from very different walks of life, and yet they essentially became the first members of the Philippian church, which is the same church, by the way, that, that Paul writes to roughly a decade later, referring them to as my joy and crown. That was a church. Now, how is it possible that such a motley crew of people who would never associate with each other in any other context became founding members of a church that later held such a very special place in Paul's heart? That's the question I've been grappling with this past week. And so I, I prepared this message with that basic question in mind. And so he, here's the outline I've chosen to use. Part one, the grace of God that saves the rich, the poor, and the middle class, right? The affluent businesswoman, the poor slave girl, and the city-employed prison guard. That's part one. Part two, God's covenant blessing upon entire households. And so I wanted to include that part because we have an important vote coming up in two weeks regarding our uh, church bylaws that relates to how we baptize children, okay? And, and right now, there's an age limit. Like, if your child is age two, it's like, we'll still baptize it. If, if your child turns age three, <laughs> then our church says, oh, you're too old. You can't baptize. It's kind of weird, right? Unless you're Baptist. But, you know, we're not Baptist. But it's kind of weird, honestly. And so, a proposal was made to lift all age restrictions. I want to just, and it is in the passage, but this household baptism, I want to address this. 
to prepare you for what's to come, okay? And part three, an uncommon fellowship only made possible through Christ. An uncommon fellowship. So let's start with part one. The grace of God that saves the rich, the poor, and the middle class. Before I say anything else, uh, I need to give you a, a little more context since it has been a while, hasn't it? And you may have forgotten where we actually are in this story of Acts. So here's the context. Paul is now in his second missionary journey. It's a longer journey. And he, he's in this, on this trip after experiencing a pretty significant fallout with Barnabas. So Barnabas is out of the picture now. And Silas is his new partner. And also we, we notice that Luke, the author of this book, is also on this team because, you know, as, as you read through Acts, you'll see Luke using the pronoun we. It's like, we're doing this now, we're doing that. So Luke's part of the team. Now, the city of Philippi is within a larger region called Macedonia. And if you remember, that the team had bypassed all of Asia to get to Macedonia because God somehow mysteriously through the Holy Spirit's work set up these blockades like were, the, the doors to Asia were closed and so Paul wanted to go in, in one direction but Holy Spirit said no and so through a vision God leads Paul and his team to Macedonia and then to Philippi and so here we are in Philippi. Now there obviously would not have been any Christian presence in Philippi when Paul's team arrived but it's interesting to note that there wasn't even a meaningful Jewish presence in Philippi at the time. How do we know that? Well, there was no synagogue to visit. See, it was Paul's custom to visit these synagogues, which were natural meeting places, right, to, to initially share the gospel to those who have already been exposed to the sort of foundation of Scripture. It would have, had, it would have <laughs> made the conversation easier. But there was no synagogue. You know, based on what I know, it, it only took 10 Jewish men to establish synagogues during this time. But see, there were no even 10 Jewish men. So there was no Jewish synagogue. Which means Philippi was truly a frontier in terms of gospel missions. So what does Paul do? Well, it's like if you can't find a synagogue, then... You have to go somewhere else. And so he finds a group of praying women, and they were by the riverside. They were not in a building. They were just by riverside. He notices them, and he goes and speaks to them. And so I'm looking at this, and I'm thinking, it's actually very helpful, right, to see what Paul's missionary approach was in such a spiritually barren place. Like, if there's no church, like, if there's no synagogue, then you know what? You should go find a place where people are earnestly praying because that at least offers some evidence that there's this hunger and yearning for God. And, and so that's what Paul, Paul does. And lo and behold, God opens up Lydia's heart and she becomes the first convert and essentially the first member of the Philippian church. Now, we don't know a whole lot about Lydia, but one thing we do know with a good amount of certainty is that she was an affluent, 
business woman. You know, the fact that Luke tells, that, tells us that she was from Thyatira and that she was a seller of purple goods are dead giveaways that she was wealthy because Thyatira was famous for its expensive purple dyes. And there was good money to be made as a seller of purple goods. That's just a known fact. And the fact that she had her own place in Philippi and that she and her household was able to host several people at a time also serves as a good indication that she possessed a good amount of wealth. You know, many, many believe that uh, she was either divorced or widowed with children of her own, but that's something I cannot prove with 100% certainty, but it, it's something to keep in mind, okay? What we can be sure of, though, is that, yes, yeah, she was a pretty wealthy woman. And you know what? As you think about wealth, right, it, normally, I think all of us would basically agree, it's very hard for wealthy and successful people uh, to have their hearts open to the Lord because they're self-sufficient. It's like they don't need anything else. They have it all already. And so that's just the nature of what wealth does. In fact, Matthew chapter 19, um, if you go to that passage, Jesus says that it's actually impossible he, I mean, he uses the word, it's impossible for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. Right? So it makes rather good sense that Luke highlights the fact that it was none other than the Lord who opened up the heart of Lydia so that she could hear the word and believe. Right? The Lord had to be the one to first open up her heart and of course, this is true for every believer. The Lord has to open our hearts. But I believe the point of Scripture is to say that it's especially true that God needs to open up the heart of the rich who are so, so self-reliant in order for them to come to faith. Now, soon after Lydia's conversion, Paul encounters a demon-possessed, fortune-telling slave girl. And this demon was intent on hindering Paul's ministry by heckling him wherever he would go. And so eventually, Paul got annoyed, right? And he casted out this demon in the name of Jesus, which freed her from her spiritual bondage. But this greatly angered her owners, since they were no longer able to profit from her fortune-telling abilities. Sort of like ancient human trafficking in some way. Right? They were abusing her and taking advantage of her. Now, long story short, Paul and Silas, they were dragged to the rulers, beaten, and then thrown into prison. But while in prison, God caused an earthquake right, to shake the foundation of the prison, and all the prison doors and shackles were loosened, and the, the prison guard himself was also greatly shaken from this experience. And after all said and done, he responds in faith to the Lord Jesus. And that is basically what we know of the first members of the Philippian church. You have an affluent businesswoman, you have a poor slave girl, and you have this sort of middle-of-the-road prison guard. And although their social status and backgrounds were completely different, what their stories have in common is that 
God's power was clearly at work in each of their examples. You see, in Lydia's case, again, it was the Lord who had opened her heart. For the poor slave girl, the demon was cast out by the power of Jesus' name. And in the case of the prison guard, it was the Lord who shook the foundation of the prison with a mighty earthquake. Brothers and sisters, this means that though we may all come from different walks of life with differing levels of ability and social status, when we stand before God, we are all a needy people who are utterly dependent upon his power to save us. Amen? And that reality should not only affect the way we respond to God in worship, but it should also affect the way we relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Because think of it, think about it. If our social status or income level did actually matter to God when he saved us, then those who have less would always be treated as second class to those who have more, wouldn't they? And those who have more would always feel like they have a reason to boast in their wealth or status, wouldn't they? But if everyone is equally saved by grace, regardless of social status, see, that's what's going to allow the rich and the poor to walk humbly together with much gratitude in their hearts and to love and serve each other as equal members of the body of Christ. And I'll say more about this sort of uncommon fellowship later in part three. But let, let's go to part two right now. Part two, God's covenant blessings upon households. And this is the one thing I didn't want to overlook. Again, because there's going to be a vote coming soon. If you look in the case of Lydia and the prison guard, notice both of their entire households were baptized, even though, even though none of the other members of their households had the same experiences, right? It was Lydia who had the experience that opened her heart and had her embrace Jesus. It was a prison guard who was shaken by the earthquake, and yet both of their households are baptized. And th this is a consistent pattern we see in Scripture, right? Members of households are baptized together. And that, that can sound very strange to those who sort of idolize self and have a very individualistic mindset. But if you understand God's design for the family and what it means for there to be a head of household, right, who's given the responsibility to lead and guide the family. In, in the case of Lydia, it would be her family, since there was no husband in the picture for her. And she was the head of her household. But this idea of head of household and the head being sort of responsible for leading and guiding the family, it doesn't sit well with people in these modern times, especially for those living in the West. See, but I want you to understand in most households throughout history, the head of household carried much more weight than they do in our own culture today. 
So like if you, if you truly are head of household, right, not by name only, but if you're truly the head of household, the rest of the family would follow in the direction you lead them. That's how it's supposed to be. For example, if you wanted your family to identify as a Jewish family, then guess what? All of your male family members, including your servants and children, they were going to get circumcised, right? They, they, they were expected and they, they had to get circumcised. It wasn't a choice. They were going to get circumcised. That's how things were done. In the same way, if you wanted your family to be identified as a Christian family, then all of your family members, including your servants and your children, were going to get baptized. Right, that's the authority you would have had as the head of your family. You know, Baptists like to argue, and I, I love most Baptists, okay? Um, they like to argue that, oh, you can't say that infants or children were baptized in any of these examples where household baptisms are mentioned because, look, it doesn't explicitly say that they were children or infants, Here's a question for all of you to ponder. Like, what do you think the most natural interpretation ought to be, right, given the cultural context people were living in back then? Honestly, I mean, take off your 21st century Western lens and, and try to put yourself in the context of the first century ancient world. I mean, ancient households in the first century were not like modern-day households in Washington, D.C., or New York City, where pets outnumber children by a lot. If I ventured into D.C. And, and sort of went into an average household, random household, there would be a greater chance of me encountering a dog or a cat than a little baby, right? That's my point. It wasn't like that in the ancient world. Having lots of children was seen as a positive thing for the most part, because the more children you had, the better your family did overall. Like if you had land, it meant that the more land, uh, the more productive your land would be. Right? And the more productive your land was, the more income you had. And so having more kids meant more economic security in the long run. And if you were old and you didn't have any children to take care of you, guess what? You, you, you weren't going to do very well. And that's still true in our day, but it was especially true in these days, back in, back in those days. You know, my point is that when you read of household baptisms in the Bible, you would do much better to envision, at the very least, I mean, you don't even have to go that far, just envision an average cornerstone family, okay? I think that will be more accurate than envisioning uh, some household in D.C. or New York City, okay? What do you think the average number of kids is in, in, you know, for cornerstone ministry, right? I bet it's not a small amount. And look, infants and children were baptized and received into the church throughout history, because when God saves us, 
He expects that we lead our families to walk in the same path that he's put us on. That's his expectation. That means if you're a parent, you are really not to have this completely hands-off approach in guiding your children. You ought never to say, you know what, I'm just going to let my kids make their own decisions regarding their gender, their sexuality, you know, what school they attend, how much computer time they'll have, this or that. Don't let them dictate, you know, when they should get a smartphone. Don't let them determine whether they should be coming to church on Sunday or not. No, you have been given a spiritual authority over them while they're still under your roof. And so as long as they're living under your roof, as long as they're under your care, you have the responsibility to form your own family's identity, right? Are you a Christian family or not? Like if you're the head of your household, I was thinking it may be helpful for you to consider Noah's example. I mean, Noah was the one who was considered righteous in the eyes of God, right? It says in Genesis, Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, Noah, right, not his wife, not his children, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah walked with God, right? Not, not his children. Noah walked with God. And then chapter 7, then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, it was a saving vehicle, okay? It was a, it was a saving vessel. Go into the ark, right? Just you, didn't say that, right? Go into the ark, you and all of your household. For I have seen that you, not your children, you are righteous before me in this generation. Right? That, that's how God viewed families. Like Noah was righteous, but somehow he, he blesses the entire household. Noah was the one who walked with the Lord, but see, in God's spiritual economy, families and households are treated as one unit, and they move together based on what direction the head of the household goes. Now, there may come a day when your kids grow up and make a deliberate choice to renounce their faith in Christ. You know, it, it's, it's sad to imagine, but I think for many of our kids that they may come. We have to be ready for it. But that's the choice that they're going to have to make and live with when that time comes, you see. But when they're still young and fully dependent upon you, it's not time yet. So if they ever tell you, Ma, Pa, or Mom, Dad, I don't want to go to church on Sunday, you can tell them, look, when you leave my home, you can make that decision on your own. But while you're under my authority, I'd like you to join us for worship. Right? Let's not argue about this anymore. So here's my perspective when I, when I see kids and children, even my own children. Like, if anyone has grown up in the church under Christian parents, I'm not going to consider them an unbeliever until they give me sufficient reason 
to think otherwise, right? Until they renounce their faith explicitly, saying, I'm no longer a Christian. But until then, we assume that they're part of the covenant family of God. And so with that in mind, I want to encourage all of you to to vote yes to the amendment, okay? Um, Like, if if you're a secret Baptist, fine, we can still do church together, but you should not vote against this, 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 this amendment, you know, you cannot try to knock this down or, or shoot this down, right? That would be inappropriate of you because we're not going against Scripture here. Uh, there's a reason why your elders, your current elders thought that it would be best to lift all age restrictions for baptism because we don't currently see any biblical justification for having such restrictions. You know, we, we want to give fathers and mothers the, the full option to witness their entire household being baptized in the name of the Lord, regardless of age. You know, I think that would be a beautiful thing. I always feel bad when parents come to me and say, can I baptize my kids? Can, can you baptize my kids? I'm like, how old are they? <laughs> age two, oh yes, just in time. Age three, <laughs> too old, old by too old, it's, it's been 10 days since they turned three. I tried once to ask Pastor Park, can we still baptize? He said, no, oh, no, got to go with the bylaws. I was like, what is this? No, what, what, are, we, what are we doing here? This, this is ridiculous. So the first church plant in Philippi consisted of Lydia and her entire household. And then you had the slave girl. And then he had the prison guard and his entire household. And that's how the church was first established. And so interesting, I guess, challenge back then would have been, you know, can Lydia's kids, if she had any, get along well with the prison guard's kids? You know, (laughs) I know your parents always concerned about how the kids would interact. Well, it's a serious question, right? Like, practically speaking. But that, that, that was always the nature of church. Part three, as we think about these challenges, uh, part three is the un- an uncommon fellowship. You know, I, I personally think that church is really the only place where these kinds of awkward relationships are greatly valued and encouraged. Can you think of any other place? You know, in the business world, for instance, Awkward relationships are avoided as much as possible, aren't they? That's why they have these, like, personality tests. You know, what's your personality type? What's your personality type? Okay, I'm not going to match you together because you're not going to work well together. And so, you know, business teams are formed based on how your personalities would gel the best because, you know, our, I guess our, our business people want their teams to be as productive as possible, And so I'm not one to dismiss the usefulness of these various personality tests that are used in our day. They're used so widely because they obviously work to a certain degree. I get that. By the way, like, I sometimes enjoy talking like, what's your Myers-Briggs? It's kind of interesting to me, but I want to caution you not to talk 
about your Myers Briggs in front of Pastor Jacob. He, he doesn't like it, okay? You know, he'll, he'll treat you as a pagan. <laughs> He's like, that's not even a thing, he always says. Um, but I, I, can see, I can see why, you know, people value it. But I have to say that the church is different. It, it measures success differently from the world, and that's why we do not rely so heavily upon these things, what the Myers-Briggs says about us. You know, like, honestly, if, if I went with my Myers-Briggs letters, I should have never married Joyce <laughs> because based on the Myers-Briggs scale, like we are defined to be enigmas, like the worst possible match ever. Like it wasn't supposed to be possible for us to get along. So I want to make it very clear, you know, we are living examples, Joyce and I, of how the gospel has this power to overcome the curse of Myers-Briggs, okay? <laughs> Let me give you another example. Most of you know that our church has a lot of introverts. Okay? You can blame me for that. I'll take full responsibility. Well, anyway, a few years ago, don't try to guess who it was, there was one brother who was this extreme, not just an introvert, he was like an extreme introvert, one of the most extreme cases I've seen. Um, and during fellowship time, he would just stand in a corner and look like a tree, like kind of like that, right? but not as pretty, not as pretty, right? just standing like a tree. And his excuse was that he did not like small talk. He didn't like small talk. It's typical introvert tendency. And so trying to be a good pastor, understanding, you know, his struggle, I said, look, you should still make an effort to get to know people. And just think of small talk as just, you know, one necessary component of building deeper relationships down the road, right? And so I... I, I I think he listened, and he tried his best to look less like a tree, but, but then he ended up relocating to a different state, and so that was that. But, you know, my point is that we cannot and we ought not use our personality types as a reason, right, not to do even the most basic things in life, like saying hi to people and, and greeting greeting them warmly when we see them at church. I, I admit, you know, when we gather as a church, I think it is a bit harder for us to initially feel close because think, think about it, right? Throughout the week, we're basically hanging with people who are at the same level as us. Right? We're, we're in our affinity groups. Like, we're, we're with people we're comfortable with. That's how we structured our lives, for the most part, we spend time with people who are at our same, like, social status. We have our groups that are formed based on our hobbies, right, based on our talents, our interests. We have our own workout buddies. We have our own, like, youth sports communities. And I love these communities, by the way. They're great. I mean, they're so fulfilling at times. But, see, the church 
is meant to be a different kind of community because it's meant to be comprised of the rich and the poor and the old and the young and the talented and the not-so-talented. It was always meant to be this kind of motley crew, a very odd, often mismatched assortment of people, right? a mishmash, people from different walks of life coming together. You know, it was designed to go beyond natural affinities. Because we are a people who have been not naturally born of God, but supernaturally born of God by his grace. That's what makes us different. And what brings us together is our common love and devotion to our Savior, regardless of who we are in this world. So, I really don't think that you should expect always to find people whom you naturally click with at church. Now, if that happens, then great. You know, praise the Lord. But see, we fellowship with others as Christians, not because we find each other particularly attractive, not because our personalities click, but we fellowship because of our Lord. It's the Lord who has bound us together by his blood. That defines who we are as his people. That's why we commit to one another, right? though we may be so different. That's what makes this church plan possible. I mean, how, how else in the world does a businesswoman and a slave girl and a prison guard do church together? It's humanly impossible. You know, one thing I want to encourage us to do more and more as we uh, close out this year and welcome a new year, 2022, can't believe it's already here. One thing I want to encourage you to do is to open up your homes a bit more to people, right, in the coming year. Be more open in hosting people and showing hospitality toward others. I mean, please, do not use COVID as a reason to be less welcoming and less hospitable to people, hospitable to others. There's a lot of talk about Omicron these days, right? You, you, do you know how many people have died from the Omicron variant so far? Okay. If you, if you, if you, didn't, if you didn't know that stat, then you, know, you might want to tune into some other news sources, by the way. I'm not saying, you know, be reckless and all, but... Again, I, I say this enough, but we, we ought not to panic. We, we ought not to be anxious. We're called to do what we're supposed to do as believers. We, we, we trust the Lord will take care of the rest. So let's open up our homes again to one another. You know, during our next CG cycle, the uh, you know, one just ended, right? But when, when the next one comes around, can we make sure that we have enough people to host our CGs? Pastor Jacob had a very hard time getting enough hosts this past round. One thing I really appreciate about Lydia and the prison guard's example is that you notice they, they immediately open up their homes 
to the disciples after being touched by God's grace. It's like, God's blessed me richly. I received an abundance of, of grace. Now I want to share this grace with you. Please come to my house. Let me serve you. <laughs> Let me uh, express hospitality towards you. See, in, in verse 15, after she was baptized, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. Come to my house. And it says she prevailed upon us, meaning there must have been some pushback. There must have been some, oh, it's okay. It's okay. You don't have to. No, but she insisted. Right? She didn't take no for an answer. And then it's, that's why it says she prevailed upon us. And so we went, essentially, and we received her hospitality. In the prison guard's example, in verse 34, then he brought them up into his house. See, the prison guard, I highly doubt that he was wealthy, kind of just an average citizen. Right? But I doubt his house was all that clean. I doubt, I doubt his wife was ready to receive guests. And yet, there was, there was food set before them. It wasn't some kind of banquet, just simple food. Let me treat you. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. I mean, who, who does this anymore? Like, people usually take, they want at least like two weeks, right? <laughs> okay, that's at least a week to prepare. Like, let, let, me get, let me get the house ready, right? This is truly an uncommon fellowship, isn't it? I'll, I'll close the message with this piece. You know, Karen Maines in her book titled Open Heart, Open Home helpfully distinguishes between entertaining on the one hand versus showing hospitality. Entertaining, she suggests, is saying, I want to impress you with my beautiful home, my clever decorating, my gourmet cooking. Hospitality, however, seeks to minister. It says, this home is not mine. It is truly a gift from my master. I am a servant, and I use it as he desires. Hospitality does not try to impress. It serves. Entertaining always puts things before people, right? As soon as I get the house finished, the living room decorated, my place setting is complete, my housework done, then, after all that's done, I will start having people in. The so-and-sos are coming. I must buy that new such-and-such before they come. That's entertaining. Hospitality, however, put, puts people before things. We have no furniture. We'll eat on the floor is the mindset. Entertaining subtly declares, this is mine. These rooms, these adornments, this is an expression of my personality. It's an extension of who I, who I am and what I am. Look, look at these, please, and admire them. On the other hand, hospitality whispers, what is mine is yours. Let me share with you what I have. It's worth thinking about, isn't it? So may the Lord give us grace, especially as we enter into a new year, and open up our hearts that we may also open our homes to one another and experience his 
richer fellowship as his people. Amen? Let's pray together. Dear Father, we thank you for your sovereign hand of grace that opens our hearts to you and draws us to yourself. And we thank you that you baptize entire households as you call upon each head of every home to lead and nurture their families in the Lord. And though the church may very well be a motley crew of people, we thank you that by your supernatural grace, we can all learn to love one another and live together in unity with much joy and peace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If we could stand together at this time and we'll respond in worship.